Welcome back to episode seven of the Everything Property Podcast. Now, I must apologize up front due to some technical difficulties. Last week, the volume on the episode I noticed and I received feedback from a few people. It was pretty low, so I've tweaked it now and we should be back to normal. Because we only are seven episodes in, I will admit I am still quite a novice at the whole technical side of the audio space. So bear with me. I'm trying to still learn this craft and get better and better every single episode. I want to provide my view on a hot topic that's been in the media lately regarding property and has been thrown around, especially during election time, and that is the idea of a rental cap. It's floated around in government come election time to skew voters and especially when there's a housing shortage. Now, how did we get here? You're asking me. Well, the Queensland government issued property owners with what's being called a wake-up call, capping rental increases in a bid to reduce the cost of living for renters. The change means that the rents will only be allowed to rise once every 12 months compared to the current six months. They're also talking about implementing a ban for real estate agents not being able to accept applications listed over the listed price. It's also called rental bidding. So for example, so if there's a house for rent for $500 and you go to that open and there's, you know, 50 people that walk through there, you might want to increase your chances of being a successful applicant of that property. And so you put in an offer, you put in an application of $520 a week. Now, that's what the government is talking about rolling out under these new reforms and that bidding is not allowed and that there will be a 500 cap. It has to be leased for the price that it is advertised for which is pretty funny when you think about advertised price and auctions and sale guides and stuff like that. I wonder if they'll bring that in as well to make it fairer for first home buyers and people wanting to buy a house. Maybe we have to stick to the listing price. Maybe we have to stick to the... It doesn't really It doesn't really make sense. I had a look. I'm actually looking to move myself and I had a look into this. So look, in Sydney, I know the majority of people listening to this podcast are in Sydney. In Sydney, for example, on a periodic lease also known as month to month. So when that typically happens is when you have a fixed term, say you have a 12-month term and you finish that and you still remain in the property, you go straight on to, unless the unless the property manager signs you up for, you go straight on to a month to month arrangement. Now, on a periodic month to month arrangement, the rent can only be increased once in a 12-month period. And when it is increased, the landlord must give the tenant, the landlord slash property manager must give the tenant 60 days written notice before the increase. For fixed terms of less than two years, the landlord and agent can only increase the rent during the fixed term if the agreement sets out the increased amount and how it is calculated. It needs to be clear. It can't be ambiguous and can't say in line with market rent or by rate of inflation. The landlord and the agent do not need to give the tenant written notice of the increase as it's in the agreement. Now for agreements with a term for agreements with a fixed term of two years or more, the rent can only be increased once in a 12 month period, again with 60 days notice. However, with all this being said, it should be noted that the tenant only needs to give 21 days written notice and vacate before the rent increase kicks in. So technically, 60 days notice, they need to give that the rent's increasing. You've got 21 days, so you've you've got the best part of 40 days to, to find a replacement and then give them if 
this rental increase is too abrupt, too high, and not in they're not in line with the market rate. To be extremely clear, I do not see an issue with the Queensland government's proposed view on capping the amount of time rent changes can occur, i.e. once in a 12-month window, as it's keeping with New South Wales. What I do have an issue with and that I'd like to frame today's podcast around is that this go- the government coming in and trying to cap the rental bidding wars and all that kind of stuff is my main issue. And the reason is, is because that isn't the problem. These are my reasons as to why I think rental caps are a bad idea. Full disclosure, I am a both a property investor and a renter or what is people or what people refer to is a rent vester. So I believe I sit on somewhat both sides of the fence. Reason number one, why I think rental caps are a bad idea. Simple. It's a supply and demand ratio. Now on the 27th of March, I posted on the Everything Property Instagram page. Go have a flick through if you've if you got your phone near you. I made a post. What's the gap between supply and demand for housing? This post was backed by RP data that showed year ending to January 2023, we had a difference between dwellings needed and dwellings approved of negative 18%. Or for those wanting a number term, 33,020 dwellings less compared to what we needed. In New South Wales alone, 52,021 dwellings were approved, while 68,060 were estimated to be needed. That's a difference alone in New South Wales of 16,000 dwellings, almost pretty much half of that number of the whole of Australia. So regardless of any absolute argument or opinion you may have, we need to acknowledge that New South Wales is simply not approving enough dwellings to keep up with the supply needed. We would be 16,000 homes short of what is required. Whether or not you want to cap rentals, you want to do any of that crazy shit, 16,000, we, we, we already, we have 16,000 less homes approved. Whether rent is capped, subsidized, or even free, we're in a housing shortage. It is simple as that. It's got nothing to do with what we're renting houses out for. Number two, investors invest. As the name suggests, the whole reason a property investor does what he or she does is to invest their money. Don't get me wrong. There's an abundance of ways out there for us to make money these days, whether it's stocks, ETFs, gold, silver, foreign exchange, crypto, all that sort of jazz, right? There's there's plenty more I haven't even named. And once you start putting a cap on housing, property investors may look elsewhere. And by having investors leave the market and not provide housing, for renters, we dramatically reduce the amount of stock available online to rent, increasing that shortfall, increasing that 16,000 shortfall to a greater amount of there not being enough dwellings. Now, you may hear some people say, yeah, that's good. Less investors means more buyers can get into the market. To this, I often smirk. And this is the way I think of it. When you're wanting to buy your primary place of residence, i.e. that home, somewhere to live and make your forever home, you're willing to pay a little bit extra. Auction day or putting in bids to the agent, you know, you've fallen in love with it. You've imagined yourself there, your partner there, your family there. You know, you've. I'm sure we've all got a mate that has a story where they they put in an extra twenty thousand or fifty thousand or a hundred thousand on auction day or in their offer just to get just to get it over the line, just to get the property secured. Well, for investors, it's the complete opposite. When I'm investing in a property, I know I I made that decision. It is made with my head and not my heart. 
when compared to those buying their PPR. I make the decision purely based on the numbers. I know what I can get for rent. I know what it's going to cost me to hold. I know what it's going to cost me to get in. There's going to be a certain rate that every investor says, yep, this is the what this is the price I'm willing to pay. After that, it does not make a good investment. Now you probably also hear property investors say and will tell you as well, they're buying below market price. They're trying to make a bit of money on the way in. So then they're almost hesitant to pay the exact market price because they want to make a bit of equity. So they might say that house is worth 750k market price. I want to try get if I get it for 720, it's going to be a good investment in good market. Now, people that are buying their PPR and see that for 750 say, "Oh my god, we're in love with it." You know what? Let's do it for 775. Now think, if you had more people buying their PPR, what would it do to house prices? Where would the people go that miss out if there's nowhere to rent? Investors are also purchasing markets that they can afford to buy that have rental demand, i.e. people looking for homes to rent and for a return. Not everyone wants to buy their home. Not everyone wants a 30-year mortgage. Not, not everyone wants to be locked down like that. There's people who love the flexibility of renting. There's thousands of students. There's thousands of foreign people coming to Australia every week who need to rent whilst they complete their degrees, while they're finding their feet, or perhaps they're being relocated for work. Just because you've been relocated for work doesn't mean where you've been relocated to. You might only want to stay there one, two, three years. They, that person might just want to rent there. There's plenty of people posted regionally up and down the coast that don't want to buy that rely on the rental market. So I guess what I'm trying to say with this is that we need investors to provide that rent, that rental housing. If, if everyone that was buying houses was buying them to live in, where would the people that need to rent live? On the street? There'd be no housing for them. Number three, less income equals worse outcome. Let me explain. Now, with the recent increase in interest rates, both homeowners and investors are feeling a little bit of an extra pinch. Now, for the investors holding property long-term, property maintenance and holding costs makes up a key issue when holding that asset. The more rent surplus or the more income I have available, the easier it is to allocate this money to repairs and property maintenance. The less I have available might mean the bigger the delay between property upkeep and maintenance. Now, what happens when we don't spend money on property maintenance and upkeep? Increased number of houses that are less desirable, that are run down. Again, not everyone wants to live in these properties. So what do we, what happens to the supply? Effectively, having less rental income will mean there is less money available for that investor, for that homeowner that's renting it out to have available for property and maintenance expenses. The more rental income that they receive, the easier it is for them to allocate and justify that allocation for property maintenance. Ray White, Chief Economist Narada Knisby, also made mention in an article on this topic about some other global cities who tried out this idea of rental control. First stop, San Francisco. What happens when San Francisco implemented a rental cap? It equaled a 15% decline in rental properties. So imagine, imagine the lines out the door that you have now and imagine there being 15% less rentals on the market. The lines have just the lines have grown around the corner. They've went around the block an extra time. She even makes mention of Berlin, which in 2020 introduced the rental cap and it halved the number of rental properties available. Why rents in all the other nearby cities skyrocketed as a result. All these rentals went down. No one could leave. Everyone went to the everyone went to the other cities. And four, my last point the market dictates the rent. No property investor benefits from having their property rented severely below market rent. Yes, it's good for a renter, but as an investment, the whole reason you're buying the house in the first place doesn't make sense. 
I've seen and heard some wild stories of increases, the media report of landlords, price gouging, etc., etc., etc. And what I have to say is this if I own an investment, let's just say it's in a fictional suburb where the market rent for a three bedroom house is $750 a week rent. Sure. As an investor, I can come through and I can put I can put the rent up to $850. But if there's stock on the market for $750 a week and the house is in a very similar condition, then nobody's gonna then nobody's gonna rent out my property for $850 a week. It's gonna stay vacant for quite a while. The aim of the game is to keep the property tenanted for as long as possible with no change. More than likely the the investor has a mortgage, the investor has council rates, property management fees, holding fees, sometimes the water rates as well. They don't want to pay that themselves, otherwise it wouldn't be a very good investment. If an investor is paying all of that out of his pocket and he's not getting rent, then it then it doesn't make sense for him to be holding that asset. So I believe it is beneficial to the investor to keep that thing rented for market price for as long as possible. Now, speaking from my own experience from owning property with tenants, if a tenant's in there looking after the house, keeping it tidy, keeping it as if it's their own, that's all I want to see is that they're respecting that house. And as a reciprocal sign of appreciation, I'd keep the rent the same without increasing it. If possibly after two, three years, we need to make a small increase, I would still keep that rented out just under market rent. Now, I wouldn't put it at market rent. Otherwise, the renters would just say, oh, maybe we'll change. Maybe we'll move. The tenant wins because they are renting it below market rent, saving them money. And I, as the landlord, win as I have respectful tenants and I have no vacancies. I have that money coming in. It's a win-win. Now, there's plenty of commentary in Keyboard Heroes Online. People are very quick to jump to conclusions and perhaps without a full understanding of the issues or from previous experiences. Let's analyze a few. So one comment I saw quite a few times was that landlords won't renew after six months and will only offer six-month leases in order to, to up the prices and kick out the tenant. Sounds great in theory, you know, those greedy landlords offering six-month leases. As I touched on above, the name of the game as a landlord is to keep your investment tenanted for as long as possible. Hypothetical situation, ready? I have an apartment up for rent for $500 a week. You're saying that I put it up for six-month lease. After six months, let's kick the, let's kick the tenants out and I want to increase it 8%. Now, 8% is keeping in line with the 16% we've seen over the past 12 months. That would equal an extra $40 a week. So I'd relist that apartment, I'd have inspections, I'd have vacancies, I'd need to pay the property manager one week's listing fee or more, two weeks vacancy and my relisting costs would equal about $1,500. Two weeks rent, 500 bucks a week rent and 500 bucks for relisting fee. What would the increase in rent be for the greedy landlord for the next six months? $40 a week by 26 weeks, you asked? It's $1,040, meaning... If I change tenants after six months for all this trouble in this scenario, I'm actually $460 a week worse off. I don't really buy into that argument. As a landlord, I want to keep it leased for as long as possible. Now, another thing I've heard is that it makes it harder for people to save. I hear it all the time and I agree. The higher your rent is, the more money you're spending a week and the less money you aren't saving. But what I've often seen or heard when digging a little bit deeper into these statements is that people aren't willing to sacrifice their current lifestyle for a few years in order to see the long-term gain. Let me tell you this, and I said it when I spoke to Lockie a few weeks back, living solely by yourself in a studio or one-bedroom apartment because you, in inverted brackets, need your own space is great. It's fantastic. The ratio at the price per bed when you're by yourself is 
is one of the most expensive ways to live. You could say you could easily save a couple hundred dollars a week by simply living with with one or two other people, splitting the rent, utilities, and bills two or three ways. Or let's talk about location. Sometimes by living an extra 5, 10, or even 15 minutes away from the beach or from work, people can save hundreds of dollars. But they aren't willing to sacrifice over the short term to see the long-term play. With that being said though, yes, rents have went up everywhere in Sydney. In Sydney alone, house price rents increased 8.9% over the last 12 months. Apartments went up 16.7%. I made this in a post on Instagram back in March titled Feeling the Rental Pinch. So go back and have a look at that. So yes, saving has been harder due to this increase and also the cost of living. But to you listening, if you're renting, ask yourself these questions, please. Am I currently paying market rent, i.e. is your rent in line above or below market rent? So have a look at whatever you're renting, three-bedroom house, two-bedroom apartment, one-bedroom apartment. Have a look at all the other properties that match that condition and that spec in your area. Are you paying market rent? Are you paying above? Are you paying below? Or if you're paying above, perhaps it's time to move. If the rental increase, is it bringing you in line with the rental market, i.e., Doing that search again, is it going to bring you up in line? Maybe maybe you've been in there for a while and you're still paying below market rent. So if in, is increasing this rent, so is increasing this rent going to keep you back in line with market rent? Again, is it above or is it below? Is the land looking looking after you or is it above the market rent? If it's if it's purely above, then maybe consider a move. If it's in line with others other stuff, then that is the market rent that you are paying in that suburb. Could you rent with one friend, numerous friends, find a flatmate or join a house that's looking for someone to decrease your weekly rent spent? They say rent money is dead money. I don't believe it. That that breaking down that statement in general is a podcast in itself, but I don't believe so. Perhaps if you're paying an absorbent amount for a one-bedroom apartment, but you need to be you need to be a bit quirky, which leads me into my next point to ask yourself, is there a nearby suburb you could move to to save some money? Is there a suburb next door? Maybe you live in a prestigious suburb, a suburb with a name and a reputation. Can you move to the one across the next suburb to save a bit of cash? Can you be a little bit entrepreneurial with your current situation? Can you rent out a spare bedroom, a car spot, a garage to subsidize the amount of rent you pay? Now, disclosure, my current situation is about to change as I'm moving out next weekend, but the example I'll give you is my own. I rent out a two-bedroom unit with a housemate in Randwick. We pay $550 a week together in rent. I pay a little bit more and I get the car space in the driveway, mainly because also my housemate doesn't have a car, but I pay a little bit more for that. Now, I rent out the garage to a photographer who pays me money every week and then I park in the driveway in front. Living in Randwick, if I had chosen to live 1,500 meters down the road to Coogee, the prestigious beachside Coogee, 1,500 meters, that 552 bedroom apartment would probably be close to $750 to $850 a week. For me, I drive down to the beach. So living a little little extra bit away doesn't really bother me and it means I'm closer to Anzac Parade and getting into the city for work. So ask yourself these sorts of questions. If you're renting and trying to save for a house deposit, ask yourself those questions. Another one I heard was, Increasing the rent 6% a year is the same as 3% every six months. I think someone that writes this comment may need to brush up on their math skills for the first five months. We'll take the the previous scenarios that $500 increased. That 3% increase in that second six months is on your 500 and 
$3,540, not on the original five. So it's actually going to benefit you for just one six percent increase rather than two, three percent. Might not be might not be by a lot, but I guarantee you that compounded second amount at three percent is going to be more over the long run. You're probably listening to this and thinking, well, what's the solution? And it's kind of like that great debate of I, I liken my solution to the great debate of how to stop people from smoking. Now, we might not all know the answer, myself included. I don't I don't think I know the full answer to it, but I definitely do know that by the government increasing the price of cigarettes, it's not really a solution. So the same here with this rental cap idea. I know it's not the solution. I don't know the solution, but I know it's definitely not the solution. I think the solution would be an extremely complex one and probably best saved for a podcast with an expert. If there's any experts out there listening that want to come and jump on and discuss it, I'm more than happy to have them on. But I think a really good place to start is with looking at the supply, looking at the increasing the supply, which can be done by the following. Now, now the newly elected New South Wales Premier, Chris Minns, he's tasked the new planning minister, Paul Scully, with cutting the red tape and the bureaucracy around development approvals. Why is this important? Because we're in a massive undersupply. So I think the best place to start is to solve this issue and start to increase the supply, i.e. increase that approval amount. As we, as we said, back New South Wales, we're approving 16,000 homes less per year than we're needing. By increasing the amount we have approved, the more approvals and the more stock built equals the more supply. The more supply means the better opportunity everyone has at getting into those houses. Just Just as simple as that. The more supply also equals the more difficult it is for the landlord to increase the rent. As you can move elsewhere, there's going to be, if there's more supply, there's more apartments available, there's going to be more places for you to move and other options. So it's going to be harder for the landlords to increase the rent. I say that as a landlord myself. And by doing this, the government can then focus their time and effort on the solutions for those who are vulnerable, the affordable housing that we need for for those that rely on the government and need that housing. The government can then focus on that. It means for us renters, we have shorter lines for inspections and less rental increases. That is my take on rental caps, guys, and why they're a bad idea. If you have an opinion, thought, feelings, emotions about it, let me know in the comments. Send me a message. I'm hoping to open this up to everyone. And if there's one thing I want to leave you today, like I do every single episode today, it's short and sweet. And that is whether you think you can do something or you can't, you're probably right.